Welcome to The Entrepreneur, conversations with entrepreneurs who view their past failures as learning experiences rather than setbacks. Today's guest on The Entrepreneur, Dave McLaughlin, CEO and co-founder of vSnap and currently the global head of member experience at WeWork. You have to have kind of bulletproof self-confidence and also deep humility. You have to have enough conviction about your nutty thing to really get after it and give yourself over to it and drive it forward. Now here's the host of The Entrepreneur, Ashley Breed. Did you always set out to become an entrepreneur? Because I think the risk profile is very high in terms of risk appetite. Part of becoming an entrepreneur or trying something new means you have a 50-50 chance of it working or not working. And so did you ever set out to become an entrepreneur? Is that even on your lexicon? No, I had no, I had no vocabulary for that or no sort of model for that. I, I set out to be a fiction writer and a playwright and a screenwriter. I'm the youngest of 11 siblings. And my dad was a professor at Boston College. And one of the perks of that job is that we could all go to Boston College for free. So going along, I was a good student and did well in school and stuff like that, but I wasn't particularly motivated or excited about anything, but I had this kind of like, if I could get into DC, I could go for free. So I got in and I applied to one school and I got in and I went and, and I was sort of frittering away that opportunity because I didn't have the focus and enthusiasm where people really do great work and where people really grow. And, and in there, I, I got challenged to write a piece of fiction and I wrote this sort of longish piece of fiction and I got super into it. And then I decided actually that I would take time off from school and write a book and turn this piece of fiction into a book. And I, I just like threw myself into that. In the course of doing that, I grew up in the city in Boston and, and like the only other sort of city kid that I knew at the time that was in any way in the arts was this one other guy who was going to acting school. And he came to me and said, Hey, let's make a movie and, and you write it and you're gonna laugh. But I, I honestly, had never even stopped to think about the fact that movies were written. Like I, even being a screenwriter wasn't really in my frame of reference. I just, I, I, I just hadn't thought about it. So anyway, I, I literally went to the Boston Public Library in Poppin Square and I took out 10 books on how to write a screenplay and I read them and I wrote what became a movie called Southie, which was Donnie Wahlberg and Amanda Peet and Rose McGowan and, and me and a few other people. And, and that's how I sort of, that's, I, that was actually before I even graduated from college. And so that's kind of how my career began was as a screenwriter and, and sort of feeling around and trying to find my voice and write plays and whatever. And, and, and really about 10 years later, I was, I was living in LA. I was pretty burnt out on that business and I wanted to get back to the East coast and an opportunity presented itself for me to go work in then mayor of Boston, Tom Menino's administration. And I took that and, and I did a lot of things there. Among other things, I wrote several major speeches for him, or I worked with a team where we did that. And that was very interesting. And that was sort of taking this background and narrative and bringing it to political administration and sort of a vision for what the city could become and, and all that. And, and that's a long prologue. But in here, I read a book, kind of an economic development book called The Rise of the Creative Class by a guy named Richard Florida. And Richard Florida basically posited that all artists are entrepreneurs. And, and he had this kind of argument where he said, look, you're creating product, you're building teams, you're raising money and so on and so on. And I look back at my experience and thought, yeah, I never once occurred to me to think of myself as an entrepreneur, but I have been doing this. I've been creating product, building teams, negotiating really complex rights agreements, doing all these things that were entrepreneurial. And, and suddenly that just sort of put a different frame on my experience and where I might go. At the same time, this was like now kind of 2007, 2008 in Boston was a time where, especially as we came into that recession, the 
the startup community in Boston was really kind of taking on a new life. The, the iPhone, I forget what generation of the iPhone we were on, but really the smartphone had just begun to become per pervasive. If you think Facebook launched, I want to say 2006. So like social networks had just become pervasive and there was this whole sort of explosion and sort of fertility around like ideas and how you could kind of get after them. And, and on the funding side in Boston, that all started to really come alive more. And, and so that's when I had this, what for me was an epiphany at probably, I was like in my early thirties. So I was sort of a late bloomer on this topic, but the epiphany was like, wow, startups are creative. And, and that sounds stupid now, but like at the time, my, my thought had been, I'm kind of a right brain guy. I'm a, I'm an artist. I'm a writer. I'm a filmmaker and technology is for the left brain. And business is for the left brain, more sort of PowerPoints and spreadsheets and whatnot. And, and so for me, it was like a big sort of opening up of my perspective to realize that actually there was all this similarity in having the germ of an idea and turning it into a feature film and having the germ of an idea and bringing that along and turning it into a product and a company. And, and there were lots and lots of transferable things. And, and there were a couple of really smart entrepreneurs that I knew who had kind of come up with an interesting early key technology, I guess it was really a hack in a way, but, but basically it allowed for mobile payments in a fast way. It allowed the smartphone and the POS to shake hands without any new hardware, because at the time the premise was that near field communications was going to be how we got to mobile payments. And, and these guys had come up with a way where you didn't need any new near field communications hardware. And, and so it. They were amazing at what they do, but also they felt like, hey, we need somebody who really feels comfortable talking to customers and really knows how to raise money and all that kind of stuff. And so we talked about it and I joined them as the third co-founder on that company. I, I'm reminded as you talk kind of about the stories and the narratives, I do remember the book that came out after the first boom and bust cycle of the early 2000s it's called The Greatest Story Ever Sold about how in the late 90s, the pitching of startups was very much in the hands of the folks who could tell the best story, and there wasn't a whole lot behind them. The second evolution of that, after everyone recovered, was the importance of having a really strong story and a really strong narrative and having the technology and having the, the base to back that up. I think it's a place where a lot of founders mistake that, oh, if I have the best product, It'll be the best. I'll, I'll get funding and I'll have a customer base. But there is that amplification factor, I think, that's needed about a strong story and strong, strong, strong sales and strong fundraising. It's a little bit of an art to take something that's technical and sort of translate it in a way that people can understand it. And, and, and that's something that I'm still trying to get sharper and better on, but, but something that I'm pretty comfortable with. So in that case, the uh, technical sort of the precise sort of thing that these guys had had kind of identified and patented how that worked was pretty, pretty wonky. And, but getting that into a story where people could start to get excited about it and frankly could start to understand it and to feel it. You feel like you'd sort of found your fit or your niche in kind of the startup world, moving from entertainment to government into kind of tech entrepreneur space? I was super excited about it. And, and like, that's really, I mean, even like I told you when I was in college and I started, I sort of found this passion of writing fiction. Like when I get excited about something, I really just kind of go for it. And, 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 and that was the case here. I felt like, oh, wow, this is just so interesting and, and creative and energizing. And, 
like sort of a believer that if, if I'm enthusiastic about something, like I could be pretty good. And, and if I'm not enthusiastic, like the best I'll be is pretty mediocre that, that I'm not somebody who I don't know how to fake it. Like if I'm fired up and I'm curious and I'm like, I just want to learn more and I want to meet those people. And I do think there's similarities kind of in, I want to tell this story. I want to be a part of this team. I, whether that's telling a documentary story or writing a screenplay or whether it's, this is a great idea. This is something that would resonate with others. I think that's purposeful. So although our conversation today isn't about like what I'm doing now, I'm at WeWork. I've been the operating leader at WeWork for the last five years. And, and when I came to WeWork, the sort of mantra or like tagline or whatever was do what you love. And, and I, I would say to people, I never thought of do what you love as this sort of like romantic, idealistic, like slogan. I think you have a much greater odds of being successful and creating an impact. So so for me, you're right, Ashley, it wasn't that I set out to be an entrepreneur. I just kept kind of following things that were exciting to me and, and where I felt like, oh, I, there's something here that I want to learn. That's how I came to WeWork and whatever, whatever lies ahead. That's how I intend to keep doing it. So tell me about how you had the idea or how did VSAP come into your purview? It really came from, I have a cousin who lives in Dublin, whose name is James Joyce. And Not the James Joyce? No, no. I mean, he's alive. So no. Um, okay. Yeah. So my cousin, Jim, who I'm, I'm pretty close with is an entrepreneur and he's in the healthcare space and he's a, just a super guy and, and we're good friends. And after we sold, so we sold that mobile payments company to PayPal in the beginning of 2010. And technically we sold it to eBay and eBay was, hadn't split PayPal apart yet, but anyway. And then I was talking to Jim and I had a little money in my pocket and, and, Jim was over in Ireland and he was, it was really Jim's sort of idea in the beginning was this notion of video messages. And his point was, I think that people are going to want to communicate in asynchronous video messages because it conveys so much more tone and warmth and all these kind of things that a text message doesn't convey. And if it's true that people are going to want to communicate that way, then they're going to want applications where you can sort of manage those things and track them. What happened early on was we, we sort of developed this thesis that like, if I reached you in a video message, because video is more powerful and conveys all these other kind of nonverbal communication stuff that is part of how people make decisions, that if I could reach you that way, you would be more likely to actually take action on whatever I'm asking you to take action on. And we devised the test and we found that there was a 41% lift. In other words, when I, when I reached out to you in an email, a text email, you converted on this action at this level. And when I reached out to you in one of these little early version V-snaps, you took action at this level. And then we were like, wow, like that ought to be something that you can make a business out of. Who wants to move somebody 41% more? Like who does that? And, and we began to sort of play around with different use cases, fundraising and sales and so on. And eventually we kind of settled on the sales use case as where we thought you could build the business. Well, I think you guys were ahead of your time. I mean, this is what Instagram Live is and what kind of Facebook prior to was reaching audiences and connecting with them face to face. And you guys designed it mostly for a commercial interaction, which I think was novel. Yeah, there was a point there where we we went, we, we really picked an application or picked a use case and that was around sales. And there were a couple of reasons. I mean, one was that we were seeing the rapid emergence of inside sales that all the other kind of technology adoption had meant that companies could sell more cheaply with folks that didn't go out and call on customers. That seems obvious, right? 
And, but, but obviously like if I'm sitting somewhere and I'm not going to go meet Ashley face to face, then there's this kind of human gap there. And that, that's where we thought we could, we could kind of step in and, and have an impact. And so we focused on integrating the product with salesforce.com and like all the things that you would look to do. And, and it was, was, there was, there were moments of great validation along the way, bits of business they closed or use cases or feedback from users about how they had closed a big deal and, and the, their, their buyer had said, Hey, you really got me when you sent me that video message. Like all those things were there, but also like we had a hard time just really making the behavior sticky. And, and that was sort of, I would say the, the, the piece that we weren't able to totally crack. In that you mean that your users were not using it on a regular basis or on a consistent basis, instead of a one-off? Yeah, it was like a special occasion behavior for them, as opposed to, we were, both Jim and I are kind of guys who are comfortable selling things and feel like we're pretty good at that. And, and so we were like, what? I don't understand. I, I would be doing this all the time. If I were just in the sales funnel and, and I could get a, we ran some more tests. I forget the exact number, but it was a 30 something percent increase in close rate when you work these little one-to-one -one video messages into your cadence of kind of touch points with a prospect. And, and like, what's the blocker? You want to yeah, close a third really, door or not? The number one like rule in sales is just follow the money. And if you're getting success using a certain methodology, you should stick with that until it stops working. Yeah. So, so, ever find out why that wasn't sticky? Even five years ago, that behavior of kind of taking out your phone and recording a video message was not normal. And, and, and not normal in sort of a professional context. It was beginning to be normal among high school kids or whatever. So that was one is people weren't used to the behavior. Two is frankly, a lot of people don't like to see their face on video. And, and, and really like, especially in a professional context where there's something at stake, you record the video and then you're like, oh, I should have got a haircut or I should like, there's a little bit of a behavior there to get used to talking to a phone screen in a way that on the other end feels like personal and so forth. Another thing, and this was, I would say, probably uh, the biggest blocker is that we had a case, and this is one of my sort of lessons that I will take forward from vSnap, which is the economic buyer, the decision maker was a different person than the user. Mm -hmm. And so we sold directly to the VP of sales and we would go in and sit with her or him and say, here's what's missing in your relationship with your prospect and here's how this works and take out my phone. Let me show you how easy it is to do. And let me show you the measurements that you have on the back end. And, and that person would go, wow, this is great. Yeah, let's totally like, let's run a pilot. Let's do a hundred seats and we'll run it for 30 days and we'll see what happens. And, and, and then they would turn around and hand it to this mid-level sales manager and say, Hey, implement this with your reps. And that mid-level sales manager wasn't bought in. The reps would say things like, dude, I'm in a cubicle. It's a mess. Like, where do you want me to do this? Does this thing give me backgrounds? Like there were just a whole bunch of kind of little practical, like friction points in the experience that we didn't solve. And we probably didn't quite have the runway to solve. Yeah. And, and collectively those things sort of kept it from what you're looking for. If you had to kind of characterize maybe what was the final piece, or I think I talk about it as kind of the defenestration point when you actually decided, okay, this is no longer working. It's time to actually shut down. What was that point and maybe what led up to it? We were building a new version of the product and we launched that new version in late October, 2014. And what happened next was amazing, which is we started to close business like crazy. And all of our kind of key metrics that we would track in our, in our selling process, like 
time to close, size of deal, et cetera. All of those went up and to the right. And we thought like, wow, we've cracked the code on how to sell this. Because up until that time, again, we were selling individual pieces of business, but, but it was kind of a grind every time. And suddenly these things just started to close in a fraction of the time. And so also we, our buyer was the VP of sales. And so in the fourth quarter, would you would expect that to be the worst time to sell to the VP of sales. And so we thought, well, if we're doing this in November and December, wait till we get to January, that person has put his or her number to bed and they're starting to think about the year ahead and we're going to really be making hay. And we got to January and it just fell off a cliff. And then, and then we thought like, because you, you tell yourself stories, right? You try to say, well, maybe I'm not wrong on that. Look, people are just getting back from the holidays. There's a lot of cleanup to do, whatever. We'll keep following up and, and you, you're persistent. You just keep working those prospects and you're not getting engagement. And then you're thinking, well, I don't know, whatever it is. I remember when I was in the film business and you'd try to go out with a script to be like, okay, you can't do it now because it's Christmas. You can't do it now because it's the Jewish holidays. You can't do it now because it's Sundance. And there were always these reasons that were kind of blockers. And, and I felt a little bit like that in the beginning of 2015, trying to sort of see the evidence of non-engagement and understand what it meant, but also trying to keep, keep alive sort of the possibility that it didn't mean something fatal. But by the time we got to the end of February, it was pretty clear that, well, actually what happened was in mid-February or the beginning of February, we started to call the people who had closed in November and December and just talk to them and say, how'd you come to this and what made that decision and so forth. And what we learned was, although they hadn't been in our funnel before, so we didn't recognize them as prospects that had been in our funnel for a long time, they actually had been watching BSNAP for a long time. So they... We're just waiting for a certain feature set. And when we launched that new product in the end of October that had that new feature set, they all said, great, amazing. That's what I've been waiting for. And they signed up and they didn't tell us that because why would they? So we interpreted that one way, but really all it was, was a, a pent up bubble of demand. And once we sort of captured that bubble, there wasn't more right behind it. And, and that was essentially the, uh, the end of the company because at that point, the runway was, we had nothing left and. It was sort of a false positive. Yeah. That's great. That was a much better way to say it. Thank you. Next time I tell the story, that's what I'll say. One thing that you touched on that was really interesting is kind of a larger trend with founders around kind of the strength of your conviction. Half the time you have a brilliant idea that is so new to the world that everyone thinks you're crazy. And you're the one that has to sort of say, no, this is a great idea and here's why, and kind of bring everyone to your side of the, the, the coin and thinking. But then conceptualizing it or kind of trying to internalize it when you're, okay, I think this has been a validated hypothesis. And then is this actually working? And I think some of that loneliness of being your own source of truth at all times and trying to identify what am I seeing in the marketplace and what is, does this actually mean it's working or it's, we all want to congratulate ourselves so quickly. And that moment of thinking, wow, it actually works. I think I'd love for you to speak to kind of that temperament that an entrepreneur needs to have to sort of rationalize what they're seeing and how difficult that can be. It's this funny combination where you have to have kind of bulletproof self-confidence and also deep humility. <laughs> and, and the reason that's true is you have to have enough kind of conviction about your nutty thing to really get after it and sort of give yourself over to it and drive it forward and tell your, your friends, your partner, your parents, your whoever, like, Hey, yeah, this is what I'm doing. And, and, and that takes a lot of conviction, but if you don't have the kind of 
humility to hear feedback from the market, then basically you can kind of run right off a cliff. And so what I have noticed, I can't think of an exception to this, but maybe you can. When you think about CEOs or leaders, political leaders, any kind of that, that are incredibly sort of like strident and sort of that, that, that bravado, that, that kind of like bullish conviction, those people can get a lot done. But I can't think of an example where those people can sustain that over time. And you talk a lot about kind of the biorhythms that an entrepreneur needs to sort of balance in that you're sort of always in contrast to what your employees or your investors or even the market might be feeling because you're processing at different times. And I thought that that was sort of brilliant and love for you. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely been my experience that you, you, you are almost always not in the place that the people around you are in. So you go out, you meet with an investor, you, you start to hash out what a financing would look like. You're confident that you're going to close that financing. You're pretty stoked, but you can't say anything yet because, you know, that isn't across the line. And, and your team at that exact moment is dealing with some bug that they can't figure out or whatever it may be that they're dealing with, right? Then you go ahead, get the financing closed. It hits the press and everybody's like, well, throwing you high fives and in your mind, you're already on to the next thing, which is some customer that's saying they're not going to renew in three months or whatever. So it is true that as the founder, you're kind of, and, and I think this might be true of executive leaders at any level, but it's probably just that much more intense in the kind of startup founder context that you're kind of always in a different place than the team. And, and that can be pretty draining. And, and also even like in your life, like I, I just had my 25th wedding anniversary. So on this whole journey, I've been married and, and. My wife's name is Beth and, and we're going down this road together and thank God. But, but like you can't come home from work every day and sort of walk her through every up and down of the day either. And, and not that she wouldn't be open to listen to it and, and trying to be supportive, but like at some point that's just not practical. So then you get to events. Like I'm thinking about when we shut down, made that decision ultimately to, to, to sell off VSnap and to wind it down and to try to just return capital to the investors and, or at least some capital and, and, and move on. And coming home and having that conversation with her, I don't want to say surprise, because she knew that we were in a moment where we were really grinding, but also like her surprise, because she didn't know we were quite at that moment. And, and that's an interesting thing. You have somebody you, you share your whole life with, and still you're having these really profound experiences that you're not completely in sync on. And, and, and I just think that's built into the job. Yeah. And I think one thing you sort of touched upon was the ability to have that empathy and to understand kind of your experience is going to be very different from that of your employees and when they're receiving or processing information. And I think it's very, it can be very difficult for folks to kind of compartmentalize my role as I've got to kind of process this failure on my own, but also understand what it's like on the other side. You just made the decision to close down based on lack of runway. This was just January of 2015, February, first quarter. Yep, March. Cold, bitter March. What's talk about kind of those, those days and those exact steps? Sure. I mean, again, back to the idea of a decision tree, as you're, you're kind of looking at your funding runway and you're, you're running all different kinds of cross scenarios with the heads. We had 12 employees at the time. We had an office in downtown crossing in Boston on Bronfield street. And, and those were kind of the, the office and, and sort of servers and whatnot were the fixed costs. 
we had 12 full-time employees and then we had some additional contractors in Croatia that were helping us on the technology piece. And number one, you're just sort of playing out the math of like, how far does my runway go? What are the different kinds of levers and variables that I can apply to that? And then on the other side, you're saying, where might I get more runway? Okay. What's in my pipeline in terms of sales? Like what is my, how have I kind of ranked those prospects in terms of closing them? How much revenue do they represent? And, and you're kind of building out flowcharts that would give you different lengths of runway. And then also you're looking at the capital picture, the, the fundraising picture and thinking like, where might I get more money? What has been the feedback from these investors when I've kind of touched base with them in the past? Are we now meeting? Are we going to clear that bar that, that this guy told me is important to him in order for him to write a check, et cetera. And, and you just, you just playing all those things together and trying to figure out like, how do I kind of make some magic here and kind of keep us fighting another day. And, and at the same time, you're looking and you're saying, what is it that I'm fighting for? Like, what is it in the product, in the behavior, in the usage? Like, with, what is the version of this that I have just total run into a burning building conviction about? And, and, and trying to kind of map that to it too, because sometimes you have to bake it like, like you're human, right? And you're, your conviction is going to ebb and flow and, and like nobody should sort of walk away just because they have a hard patch. Like we got to grind, but, but also as you work your way through that decision tree and the things you thought were true, turn out to be falsified by the evidence of user behavior, then I guess I feel like you have to be honest on that too. And, and at some point, either you're saying to your employees and your investors and so forth, Hey, we're effectively starting a new company. And I'd like you to bet on me for that, which is a pretty tough thing to say, meaning it's a tough thing to get people to sort of buy into, or you're saying, no, no, actually what we're doing is right. We were just off by X degrees and here's sort of the evidence to support that statement. And here's what we're going to do next in order to validate that. And here's what market that opens us up to if we're right, which I believe we are. So you're kind of playing all those different pieces. And I, I, I did something in that last week when this was going on, which is that I took sort of bullet notes throughout that. So I was working 4 a.m. till 9 or 10 p.m. And then I would take the red line home and I would sort of write down a bunch of bullets of the day, just kind of impressionistic. And, and, and I was reading through those, thinking about this conversation with you. And it's a really interesting mix of like what I have for lunch and, and like what the weather was. And then also like specific investor conversations and details from meetings with lawyers and a conversation with my kids were very young at the time and a conversation with one of my kids that was about something different, but like it could have been about this. And yeah, so it, it's, uh, it's very emotional for sure. Yeah. And I think part of it is trying to kind of figure out where does this fit in sort of my, how do I characterize this? Is this how, is this my, like, I can see you writing down some of like the mundane parts of your life, probably trying to kind of quantify or add kind of a, this is really weird and this is my normal state. And just trying to kind of calibrate, I guess, the extent to how big of a deal is this and how am I going to kind of characterize or contrast that with what I know to be true or what I know to be my normal state. There was this one moment that, by the way, I think I wrote the mundane details because I figured like, I'll write a book about this and yeah, <laughs> exactly. And, and I want to remember like some of the mundane sort of real life stuff, but there was this one amazing moment that I'll never forget. So, so like I said, we had this office on Bromfield Street. It was in this sort of old, old building. It wasn't the, it wasn't the sexiest thing. And, and there was an alley next to it, but it had these great 10 foot windows. I think it was a French Empire building. 
like architectural style. They had these gorgeous big windows and, and one of the windows facing onto the alley looked out and about call it eight feet away was the wall of the next building. And there was a downspout that ran up the side of the building, like essentially centered on the window. So I would sit here at my desk, the window was in front of me. I'd be looking out at this alley and there was a downspout going up. And that winter was just an atrocious winter. That oh, was yeah, the winter. The worst. Yeah. And yeah. we broke all the records for snow and all that kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. what happened as we went through the winter was each time the snow fell and then there was melt on the roof of that other building, it would run down the side of this downspout and then it would freeze. So as the winter went along, the downspout went from like this thick to this thick to this thick to this thick. And it had this sort of gorgeous column of ice encasing it. And it was probably foot and a half across and, and the light hit it and stuff. And I'd be sitting there trying to figure out what to do with the company. And I'd be looking at this thing going, wow, like it's this amazing sculpture or whatever. And then in March, you got a little bit of warm weather and it had never occurred to me what was going to happen with this column of ice when, you know, it started to melt Mm -hmm. and you can imagine what happened, which is the bottom melted first. And then one day I was sitting there and out of the corner of my eye, I saw something move and I looked up and this column of ice was crashing. It was like teetering, like a, like a redwood in the forest coming right toward me. And I literally got up and dove out of the chair as this foot and a half block of ice came smashing through the 10 foot windows, just glass everywhere where I was sitting on my MacBook, the whole thing. And I was like lying on the ground and my, my, our, our head of sales was with me too. And we were both just like, holy cow. And it felt so, it felt so like, wow. Like if that's not a sign from God, like that isn't really how I think about making executive decisions. But like, it really did just feel like this, oh my God, this pending sent. Everything is crashing down. That was was like all around us right then. And, and this thing that you thought was beautiful actually was like potentially fatal. And, and, and I went home and I was telling my kids this story and my kids were, I guess, like maybe six or seven, like, like the younger one was probably six and the older one was nine. And, and again, it's a good example of where you're living in something and you're not thinking about how it hits other people. And my six-year-old was so upset about it and he wouldn't go to bed that night. And, and he was, he was crying and he, he really had in his head that I could have been killed. And again, what I took away from that moment, even in that moment was Dave, just cause you're living in something and have this sort of full awareness of like the whole picture of it. It doesn't mean people are ready to understand that and, and that people, other people can't necessarily take it just because you can take it, whatever it is, all the kind of like intensity and, yeah. and difficulty of the experience. You're in it, walking the walk and it's hard and so on. But like, it's just like, oh, that's the water you're swimming in. And then you, you turn around and you share a piece of it with your kids. Like, wow, it was this amazing sort of wacky anecdote and they feel it in a completely different way. That to me is what a lot of startup experience is like, is like that you're, you're, you often find yourself facing the awareness that other people just don't understand, you know, what this experience really is, because how could you, if you're, if you're not in it. And does it come down to kind of the risk appetite? I mean, you willingly enter in, not everybody goes into becoming an entrepreneur because it is challenging. It is a roller coaster. I felt at times it was very bipolar of the highs being so high, the lows being so low, and you have to keep an even keel and process and sort of calibrate everything that you're seeing to stay sane. But I think it's interesting. I'd be curious to know kind of your tricks to that is really just 
filtering the information to your audience. My tricks to how do you deal with that sort of highs, highs and low lows? Or, or more so that not everyone's going to be able to really understand your experience and your yeah. experience might be shocking, yeah. and terrifying for others. I think there's, I think there's a few things. One is you come to accept that that's part of the job, but like not to be a total stoic about it, but, but like also to manage your own expectations, you're going to have to experience that. And, and I think going in, it's good to just sort of know that and kind of be ready for it. Two is you should find some people you trust and you can talk to. And oftentimes that's other entrepreneurs or whatever, or it's, it's, it's old friends or whatever it may be. But I think some other people who have some understanding of, of what it is to go for something big and the pressure that comes with that and being able to have those conversations. Three, for me, there's never any substitute for exercise. Like just the sheer chemical sort of processes that go on with our exercise and, and kind of relieving stress and so on. And then, and then really four for me is my own practice, just by force of habit is to get up early in the morning and try to write and sort of take something that is weighing on me and sort of write my way to some perspective on that thing. So, and, and then frankly, once you've done that, it's a lot easier to have the conversation with the other person who hasn't had the same experience, whether that's your employees or your, your, your spouse or your significant other or whoever it may be, because you've sort of, you've sort of taken this like raw perspective and emotion that you have and, and refine that a little bit into something that other people can, can, can sort of get their awesome. heads around, I guess. Yeah. yeah. And I think I would love, I think you had, you sort of took a very measured approach to your next steps in kind of post-processing some of this, we're going to need to shut down and how do I communicate it and how do I go about this? I think you took a very, if you could talk to your step. Yeah, Yeah, I did. Again, because I had sort of internalized the decision, whatever, a couple of days before the decision was actually shared with everybody else. and, And so I was already sort of beginning to take some steps out of it and say, okay, how do we navigate this? What's next, et cetera. And again, I had good advisors and friends that kind of were sounding boards for me in this and great lawyers and so on. And by great lawyers, I don't just mean they were great attorneys. I mean, they were real thought partners in terms of thinking about how to, how to navigate this. But, but basically what I felt like was there are three things that need to happen in this order. Number one, I need to help all my employees land really well because because I don't really have, I think I had a week severance for them. So everybody's got rent and whatever else. And like, I can pay you for another week. So I did something there that was, I had never seen anyone do, but I think everyone should do it because it's just so simple, which is I took a Google sheet. I put every employee in, I put what I felt that they were expert in. I put their LinkedIn, I put their cell phone and email or whatever. And then I sent it to every VC and angel investor in Boston and just said, Hey, I recommend every one of these people. And I'm sure that your portfolio companies are hiring and encourage you to share this with them. If anyone needs a little context on any of these folks, here's my cell number. I'm happy to talk anytime there. And everybody had interviews starting the next day and, and everybody was in and on a job, frankly, making more money inside of 10 days. So that was wow. great. And that was something that obviously is important. And again, it actually was pretty easy. So that I think that's sort of just should be a best practice because all the, all the investors out there have portfolio companies that are hiring. If they didn't, they'd be pretty sucky investors. And then the second thing for me was you got you to gotta see if you can sell the company or as a, as a sort of 2B, at least sell the technology assets because you want to get as much cash back into the bank account as you can 
number one, so that you can wind it down properly, legally, et cetera. And number two, so that you can return as much cash as possible to investors because that's the right thing to do by them. And yeah. And so I had a whole whiteboard full of strategies of who might want to buy a video messaging application. And it involved basically anyone who was trying to kind of create more person-to-person interaction, but, but not in a live or synchronous way. It was people like HubSpot and LinkedIn and Salesforce.com and, and so on. And then there were some others that were a little less household names, but it might be useful in their business. And, and I just, I just was working the phone and sort of trying to get in touch with those people. I had already bought travel and a, a ticket to a big sales conference in Chicago for sales purposes. Like I was going there to sell, but then now I went and just sort of worked that room because all these other folks in the sales enablement space were also prospective buyers of, of vSnap or the technology. And I, I was pretty, pretty diligent about that. And then I got an inbound call from the head of technology at Gainsight basically saying, hey, we're thinking about building a video messaging application that we could put into our customer success platform. And I, I just thought maybe you'd want to talk about us acquiring yours. And so it was one of those classic things where you're doing all the right things and, and work and work and work. And none of those actually produced the outcome, but there was just this sort of simultaneous serendipitous thing that happened. And, and so then he and I began a conversation and we wound up being able to make a deal for that. And, and it's funny because then they sort of baked it into their platform and relaunched it as GSnap. <laughs> which I always thought was absolutely hilarious. It was, it was like my press release with one letter change. And thankfully that's, so that was good. That let us, like I said, sort of proceed with the process and do everything properly and also return a little bit of capital to the investors, which at least symbolically is important. And, and then the third thing really was to get out of the lease. And, and luckily we had a really cheap lease and, it, and, and had a really, my, my wife had sort of like tricked it out with like, a bunch of trips to Ikea and whatever. And it was like this cool space. And there were plenty of other startups that wanted to have it and figured out how to do that and throw in all the furniture and just kind of walk away. So that could have been a lot worse. And, and then from there, it was sort of like, okay, now what do you want to do? And throughout that, a bunch of people thankfully had been saying to me, Hey Dave, why don't you come work with us or whatever? And, and I was kind of like, look, I, I don't want to just pinball into the next thing, even though I need to, cause I've just lost a bunch of money and I need to, I need to go get a job. I just, I want to be much more intentional about this. Cause I feel like I'm coming out of this incredible, rich, formative, painful, but experience. And I want to I want to, I don't want to just like go get a job. I want to think about where do I bring all that and, and what do I want? And like I said, my, my sort of personal process is to get up in the morning early and kind of take a question and try to write, write my way into the question. And I did that for maybe a week or so. And then I, I hit on this, what I thought was like a beautiful little pithy construct, which is because the question for me was like, what do you want to do? And, and then I reframed that as like, what do you want to do really should be a function of what do you want to learn? And then what do you want to learn became a much more answerable question for me. And, and I started to think, well, look, I love doing this. I love starting things and growing them and, and competing. And what is it that the next time I do this, I would like to know that I don't know today. What muscle would I like to have built so that the next time I do this, I could serve that team better than I could serve this team here. And, and my answer to that was I had never been in a true hyper growth post product market fit company and friends who I had seen in that context, I was always kind of intrigued by how do you make that many decisions at that scale, at that speed and not sort of screw everything up every day. 
but because the the real just like hyper growth drinking from a fire hose like i'm fascinated by that so go back to what i said earlier like you get this kind of idea in your head and you're like wow i really want to understand that and i i want to learn that and i want to build that capability and i got excited about it and and so i wrote a blog post basically saying hey here's what i want to do and i put it out and like that afternoon a guy called me and was like you should come to WeWork," and i was like I don't know. I'm not really a real estate guy or whatever. And they were like, just come and meet Adam Newman and a couple of other people. And, and so that's how I got there. We, I had a conversation with him and, and another couple of the executives and, and just said like, this is what I'm about. And this is what I'm interested in. And they were like, when can you start? So, and that's been an amazing journey in like more ways than one, but, but, but just like on a personal level, it's been incredibly formative. I got exactly what I went looking for, which is how to be an effective leader in a hyper growth company. I wound up having the chance to lead a big chunk of the U S and Canada business, essentially almost every market in the U S and Canada at one time or another, and more than a thousand employees rolling up through me and that kind of thing, which is pretty, pretty wild coming from a startup with 12 employees that didn't work at the end of the day. So, so I really do think that it's a good example of well, if you can take a minute and be intentional and sort of find that, that clarity of intention, then what you gain in these deep, intense, rich, but painful experiences can be, can be carried forward in a, in a very powerful way. Yeah. And if I may, kind of hearing your story, it does sound a little bit like for the first time in your life, you were very intentional about what do I need to learn and grow to, as opposed to what do I want to kind of, what, what's a good idea that I could get excited about? It feels like you took yeah. a very, very intentional turn. I really grew up. I really grew up there. I was like, I'm a big kid now. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so I think if you could, I, one of the things I'm very impressed with is that your, your ability to be so tactical when you were going through the failure and to sort of triage and prioritize and say, okay, I'm going to take care of my employees. I'm going to take care of my investors and I'm going to eliminate the most costly piece of my, 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 my balance sheet right now, which is my lease. Maybe it was payroll. But how did you do that? How did you kind of, what did that feel like? Well, I don't know. I mean, I think, I think that um, if you think about what it is to write fiction and especially to write screenplays and plays, you're really taking disorder and ordering it. And so I think that like in, in the course of that work in my life, I, I, I kind of built that muscle of like sitting down with this sort of very raw, unmanicured idea and sort of blank sheets of paper and learning a process by which that idea gets put on the paper in a way that is ordered and sort of constitutes an art or a journey and, and makes people feel something and so forth. And so I'm not sure exactly what else to say about it, except that taking things that are chaotic and trying to put them into some sort of an order so that we can move to a place that we want to be. And whether that's in my life personally, whether that's in a startup, in a piece of fiction, or now in the context of a bigger company and a bigger team and so forth, I think that's an important ability. And I think it, it kind of goes back to what I said when we were chatting, which is why do I value this experience of the, the failure of VSNAP so much? And the, there are a lot of reasons in addition to like friendships and, and so forth. But ultimately what I think it, it is really about is if you, if you go through that experience in a certain way, it deepens you as a leader in a, in a really profound way. It's really, it's just like amplifies your ability to serve other teams and sort of help people achieve what they're trying to achieve or or yourself, what you're trying to achieve kind of the next time out of the gates. And, and there's, 
I'd say there's a, there's a bunch of pieces of that. I've, I mean, first off, you go through an experience like this and you, you develop a sort of antenna for what is truly urgent the next time around that success is not preordained and that like certain things matter more than other things. And you develop an ability to kind of distinguish those things. That's really important because you've, you've experienced the pain of not getting the fatal things right. And, and so you don't want to feel that again. I think there's also just a lot of practical learning about like where and how and when things can go sideways. I mean, I talked about the learning of when your economic buyer decision maker is different from your user and really starting to organize around, okay, you've distilled this bit of understanding. What do you do with it? How do you change your sales process? How do you invest in onboarding? Whatever those things are. So understanding like it's really a system view or it's kind of a five whys or root cause, like where did this go wrong? Because I see the symptom over here, but let me track it back. I think there's obviously just learning about the cost of being wrong. You go through this, especially as you get older, you go through this. It's like somebody chopped your finger off and you're like, I only have so many fingers left, but like, I, I just can't afford to keep being right. And when you said, I mean, can't, can't afford to keep being wrong. And when you said, I think you were right, that coming out of this VSAP experience, I was much more intentional about what was next in a way that I hadn't so much been in the past. That really, I think, is a function of age. Because in my life, I've, I've done a lot of things that I'm really proud of. And I've made films that I'm immensely proud of. I've written plays that I'm immensely proud of. I've done work in, in business and in, in, in when it, during my time on the team at City Hall. But also, I've had the experience of, like, sometimes something is both a success and a failure. Meaning, go back to the movie Southie, which was the first movie that I made. Everybody around me felt like that was a success. Because... 1997 is when that movie came out. Like making a movie was still a manual, but was a very arduous thing to do. And, and not many movies got made. It was capital intensive, et cetera. You needed special equipment and blah, blah, blah. And we got that made. And that was a big deal. And in that sense, it was a success. But personally, I didn't like the movie. So then I watched the movie and I think, oh, you know, what I was looking to do, it was a failure. And so I think that you get used to sort of living in this dual view where it's like I completed this I did not run a marathon but just as a metaphor like I completed the marathon like that's a success by any standard but like I didn't hit my time and and so I think I made another movie later called on Broadway which I just I love this movie so it was a case of like you really you really expressed what you wanted to express and and that's very hard it's very rare that like you come to the end of the multi-year journey of making a film and you look back and go that's exactly the movie I wanted to make like whether people like it or not that is the movie I wanted to make and that's an amazing feeling. But then we hadn't really designed for the new digital distribution world. And, and so we weren't able to kind of get it out there in a way. So you failed in that regard. And, and that can be painful. And it's almost more painful because you made sort of this beautiful thing and you can't get it out to the world. So I also think that like when I think about this, it's not as binary as there's failure in their success. A lot of times it's sort of a lot more mixed up together. And I think when you go back to this idea of why do these experiences help you lead, it's because you start to appreciate nuance. And, and there's a time for very clear distinction and, and sort of very clear like articulation of it's this, not that. And then there's other times, especially when you're facing your team and, and you need to sort of bring that empathy and understanding to your team that appreciating how these things are a little less black and white is, is a valuable ability to have. I think it really, the word I would sort of translate that too is gravitas and the idea that as a leader when you have gravitas you just like fundamentally what is it to be a leader well it's to bring you somewhere and and like if i'm going to follow you what is it that i need to know first i need to know 
where is it that you intend to bring me? And then, and then I need to know, like, why should I have confidence that you can actually bring me there? And in this, this sort of gravitas that is not simplistic, that is not reductive in terms of understanding, yes, there are these amazing obstacles on our journey, but like, I, I'm not in denial of those obstacles. And at the same time, I'm not afraid of them. And I do have experience of sort of helping to bring teams past obstacles like this. And you can trust me and so forth. All that kind of deepens when you go through experiences like this, I think. Yeah. And it sounds like, I mean, it, immediately almost after you shut down DSAP, you were already able to kind of characterize it as a learning and not necessarily a failure that you couldn't recover from. I, I never had any like, like, I mean, it's one of the beautiful things about the startup space is that there's no stigma on trying something and not, and having it not work as long as you carry it yourself sort of the right way when you did it. It's funny. I didn't play hockey growing up, but I'm a huge hockey fan. And, and one of the things I always love about the Bruins coach, Butch Cassidy is he just talks about like, we're playing the game the right way. And like, in other words, there is a right way to play this game. And, and that's sort of what I mean by like how you carry yourself. And, yeah. and I think that if you've carried yourself well, and you've sort of left everything on the ice and, and you can kind of look people in the eye and you tried something and at the end of the day, like it didn't work either because you were wrong to some degree or because there were externalities that you couldn't control or some combination of those things. Your timing was off, whatever. There's no shame in that. I mean, I, to be honest, I think there's a lot of pride in that because it takes a lot of courage. And I think people, we look around in the world and we want people to have courage. We want to, we want to be with people who have courage. We want to, we want to be on teams with people who have courage. We want to invest in people who have courage. And so if there's, you don't want foolhardy courage like bravado, but if there's courage and learning, if there's courage and sort of maturity and, and humility and so forth. Like those are powerful things. And, and I mean, I think they're powerful when I encounter them and other people. And, and I think that that's sort of when we kind of closed the books on DSNAP, there were a couple of things I felt really badly about, particularly a couple of investors, angel investors who came in very late. And so I wished I hadn't taken their checks. The people who came in earlier, I mean, I certainly would have preferred to not lose their money too. But I didn't, that didn't kind of weigh on my mind in the same sense, because obviously we all sign up for a risk exercise. And the reality is the entrepreneur is more, angel investors can have diversification. There are many different companies or whatever. And the entrepreneur is completely undiversified. He or she is like in this one thing. And so has risk, you know, and it's not necessarily the same monetary risk and there might be monetary risk too, but it's just a different like full life risk. And so to lose at the end of the day, I don't necessarily feel badly for other people who lost along with me because I lost along with them too. Right. But in, in that, that sucks, but like, it's sort of part of what we sign up for. We all know that going in, yeah. assuming that the entrepreneur is transparent about the risks of a venture, which I certainly was. But then there's just something sort of that's a little practical, a little practically harder to swallow about people who came in later. And then sort of the end of the road comes pretty fast. And although I have to say for the guys who that was the case in, in, in terms of VSNAP, they were all complete champs about it. Like they were just so like, Hey, that sucks. But like, we don't have any question as to you know, the totality of your commitment and your effort in, in service of this. And so does it suck to lose this $50,000 or whatever? Like, yeah. And to lose it fast. Yeah. But kind of part of the deal. So they were very generous in their feedback to me, which obviously I'm endlessly grateful for, but I still 
that was one piece that I, I just never felt great about. Sometimes trying as hard as you can doesn't, sometimes it is just, you did all you could, but it wasn't enough. And I think that probably is the hardest piece to get over, but. Yeah. And I think it's, it's actually an interesting note to bring in a conversation like this, because sometimes conversations about failure and why failure is important tend to be a little like self-absorbed tend to be like, Hey, why is this important for me? And, and it's good for us to remember that that failure also had cost and pain of some sort for other people. And so what I take away from that, while I'm very intentional about that and, and appreciative of that, it's also, I think, appropriate to remember that, like, it also costs other people things too. But again, jumping back to the other side, that's kind of all in the bargain. If you're going to, if you're going to invest in startups and you take on risk and, and you take that form of risk, I take another form of risk, but like, we're all taking risks here. Transparency and alignment, I think is always going to be a key. I mean, it's key to life, I think really, it's just. You kind of have to be, yeah, on, I mean, I guess on the same page, to your point, they're all, everyone's aware of the risk and we're all going to do our best. It sounds like you look back on Visa very fondly. Number one, from the very beginning with my cousin, Jim, who I love and, and appreciate and just like doing that with him from the beginning was amazing. He's in Dublin still. He, he runs a, a medical device company that he started and he's, yeah, he's doing great. So he spent, he went right back, same as you, into, um, into the... He, he was never an active partner in BSTAP. He was always running his own healthcare company in Dublin, and he was, was on the board with me and, and was there as kind of a sounding board thought partner. But he was never actively involved in the venture. I'm always grateful for to have that experience with Jim. And, and I, I made amazing friendships and some of the investors who were involved. And look, to do something to try something and to have people affirm and support that, you gotta be grateful for that. I told you earlier that I never thought of myself as an entrepreneur until I read that Richard Florida book. And then suddenly my frame on myself and my ability and the possibilities changed. So I'm a huge believer that like how you frame things is not just like a, a nicety of intellectual thought, like it is the lever on action. And so I really like this definition of power as the ability to bring your ideas or your values to life in the world. That, that's a very different notion than sort of what we think about of like the powerful evil genius in a movie or whatever. And I think it's, it's kind of a positive notion of power. Well, Dave, as always, I think I'm inspired to get out there and fail a little bit more, learn a little bit more, make sure I'm- And hopefully succeed too, by the way. Like it's important that we succeed too. I think if, you, if we're just going out there and failing, then, you know, that can kind of seep into the soul a little bit and, and it's harder to get back up and it's harder to start. But I think it's important that we don't romanticize that either. Not yeah. that that's what you're doing, but I, I think like it's all good. And, yeah. and at the same time, nothing succeeds like success, having those experiences and sort of being able to reflect on the differences. It's one of the other interesting things between failure and success is if, if, you, if you have success and you have failure, you can look at the two in comparison and think, what did I do differently? And how did I play that hand differently and so forth? Well, I, it's an interesting thought. Do you, can success exist without failure? Can success exist without failure? I guess I don't really, I mean, again, I don't think of failure necessarily as such a discrete event. Like I think it's sort of mixed it. Like every day we get up and we try for something and we come up a little short in some sense. I mean, again, I go back to my, my most formative experiences as a writer, the nature of trying to write something is that you're always sort of a little shy of what you're trying to capture and convey. And it's very, very rare that you're actually like, oh my God, that's actually the idea I wanted to get out. When you pick it up and like, you take it out of a desk drawer a year later and you're like, yep, it's still the right idea. Like that doesn't happen that much. So. I think that like we're, we're, we're having these kind of 
call them micro failures or something all the time. And, and they, if we, if we frame them the right way and we get the right perspective on them, then they, they deepen our ability to be successful. Absolutely. Dave, as always, such a pleasure to talk to you. Honestly, you're one of the best in the, in the world. So thank you. Oh, well, that's a big statement, Ashley, but you know, I'll take it. Thanks for listening to The Entrepreneur. Please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about The Entrepreneur, including booking information, please visit pod617.com slash entrepreneur. The Entrepreneur is a production of pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network.